Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. So everyone knows where we are, right, in the Bible? Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Everybody there? Okay, let's stand to pray. Precious Lord, we exalt you, we praise you, we bow before you, we love you, we adore you, and we yield before your sovereign authority. We come before you today in the Holy Spirit, through our mediator, Jesus Christ, and make a supplication to you, Heavenly Father, to bless us with your presence, to bless us with your light, and to guide us by your illumination, that your words will be made true in our minds, and that your inerrant, infallible truth will be made alive in our hearts, that we may continually nourish upon it, feed upon the bread of life, and be spiritually sustained by your everlasting power. Be with us, with, be with us today, O Lord, and bless us with your grace and your presence. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. amen. So today we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. And this talks about Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Romans 1, 4 ends by saying, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then verse number 5 explains and clarifies about Christ. Verse number 5 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So verse number five says, through whom? Verse number five is telling us, through Christ we have received grace. Christ is the mediator through which we are the recipients of grace. And that's important to realize because without Christ's mediation, without Christ being the door, the bridge between us and our Heavenly Father, there's no salvation. There's no grace. There's no gospel. There's no atonement. There's no message to preach. And without Christ, who is our mediator, we all wouldn't be here. So through Christ, we have received grace. Now, in my personal opinion, I've told the church before that the most important word in Hebrew is hesed, which means grace, loving kindness, steadfast mercy. In my personal opinion, the most important word in Greek is charis, from which we get our English word grace, from which we get our English word mercy. Now someone tell me, because this word grace is cataclysmically important, what is the simple, plain language definition of God's grace. What does that word mean? 
The simplest definition of God's grace is his unmerited favor, meaning it's something we don't earn, it's something we don't work for, it's something that God freely bestows upon us. So the God's grace refers to his unmerited favor, and that's an important qualification, unmerited, because if God's grace ever were merited, it wouldn't be grace. And notice the tense of the verb here. Paul says, through whom, through Christ, we have received grace. That verb is passive, meaning we are the passive recipients of something of God's unmerited favor. So look at what Paul does. He begins talking about the gospel by telling us the person the gospel revolves around, Jesus Christ. He begins by telling us about the gospel by telling us about the person of Jesus Christ. Now when Paul begins telling us how the gospel relates to us, the first thing he says is that it's through Jesus and how the gospel relates to us is through God's grace. Because grace is a relational term. It begins with God and it flows downwards to us. Church, grace is relational. And just as God's justice emanates from his nature or essence of him being holy, God's grace, which is relational, emanates from, figuratively speaking now, the heart of God emanates from God's love for those whom he knew before the foundation of the world. Donald Gray Barnhouse once wrote this, quote, Love that gives upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops is grace. End quote. In the Bible, when that word grace, charis, is used, it almost always refers as something that God demonstrates to us. And thank goodness, God does demonstrate grace because without God's grace, nothing is possible. Without God's grace, creation would never have been created. This now brings us to the fifth and final core doctrine of the Christian faith. And that core doctrine is that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Core doctrine of the Christian faith number five is that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, we're going to be very, very particular about the language that we use. We are saved by grace through faith. If someone were to tell me that we are saved by faith, I'd get in a fight with them. Now, someone explained to me, I'm being very stringent about the words we use. By grace through faith, not by faith. Someone tell me why. 
If someone walked up here and said, we are saved by faith, why should we have a problem with that? We can't save ourselves, and the reason why anyone is able to respond to God in faith is because of God's grace. But when talking about salvation, if someone were to say we are saved by faith, why is there a problem with the language? Faith does save us, but faith is the, so here's the answer. Faith is the instrument by which we are saved. Let's make this plain. If we were to say that we are saved by faith, that now means what we're saying is that something that, that is exercised by us, our faith, that is what saves us. But when we say that we are saved by grace through faith, that is now more theologically precise. Why? Because now God's grace is what enables a person to have saving faith in the first place. But here's the thing, church, but be very careful about this. Our faith is not causal in saving us. Our faith, our faith is not the cause of our salvation. Why? What our faith does is it holds on to who? Jesus Christ. And because of what he did, he now is the mediator that saves us. And this is why I'm so particular about language. We live in a world now where some people deify their faith where faith is now what works, where people say, if you have enough faith, you can now get anything you want in life, where now faith is causal, something that you and I can demonstrate or a work that we can do is now the cause of what merits us salvation. Church, realize something. If people had titanic faith but no Christ, no one would be saved. This is why we are saved by grace, a love of God that stoops, which now enables us to respond to who? Who's the object always of our faith? Jesus. We now cleave to him, and because he lived, he made an atonement on the cross, and because he rose from the dead, he is the one through whom we are now saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith in who? In Jesus Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. Now, when I say we are saved by grace through faith, that's the exact opposite of saying that we are saved by merit through works. And if we were saved by merit through works, why would that be a problem? Yes. Exactly. If we are saved by merit through works, that in and of itself is a tacit admission that God is not God. 
because God now is not sovereign. If the thing that causes us to be saved is our, our works, what someone could now do is walk up to God and say, look at my scorecard. Look at everything that I've done. Now, God, you have to let me into heaven. That now dismisses God's nature. That now dismisses God's character. That now dismisses, essentially, everything that Jesus did in his life and public ministry. It dismisses the gospel, period. Where now we are really God telling God what to do. We are saved by grace through faith. If we were saved by merit through works, we wouldn't need God. In that case, God is not sovereign. But let's take it even farther. When we talk about grace or the unmerited favor of God, God's grace not only means that we do get what we don't deserve, it also means we don't get what we do deserve. No one deserves salvation. No one deserves heaven. God's grace says, by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are now saved. God's grace also says, the thing that we earn, which is eternal condemnation in hell, that's what everyone here, that's what we all earn by our own sin. But God's grace says, through Jesus Christ, I'm not going to impose you to the penalty that you yourself has earned. That's the beauty, that's the majesty, that's the saving power of God's grace. And this is why, going back to what we said before, a salvation plan of by merit through works will fail. Because people who believe in a works-based religion always work on the presumption that God will only count the good stuff that we do. But people fail to realize if God is keeping a scorecard, the, the bad stuff that you do counts infinitely more than the good stuff that you do, in which case everyone is condemned before they ever get started. So we are saved by grace through faith. Now when we zoom out now, we now have talked about all five core doctrines of the Christian faith. Number one, Trinity. Number two, the God-man. Number three, the atonement on the cross. Number four, the resurrection. Number five, by grace through faith. The overriding or the central principle which animates the five core doctrines is the sovereignty of God, meaning God is in complete and total control of the entire salvation process. He's the, one who, he's the one who came seeking us. God descended from heaven. We did not ascend to the heavens above. Jesus came down to where we are to die for us on a cross, and God's love stooped down to save us. Central theme of the five core doctrines is the sovereignty of God. Now, the Apostle Paul says, through whom, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Now, there's a difference between someone being an apostle called to the office 
of apostle and apostleship. So there's a difference between having the office of apostle and having the calling or name of such. Because in a general sense, the word apostle just simply means someone who sent. And in a general sense, all Christians are sent. Who are we sent to? We're sent to other people. We're sent to the world at large to tell other folks about Jesus. So no one in this day and age will ever occupy the office of apostle. But when we're now talking about apostleship or the general idea of being sent to tell the good news of Christ to others, Christ sends all believers out into the world to be his ambassadors to communicate the reality of the gospel to a lost world. After all, that is always the means God uses. One person who knows the gospel, communicating it to someone who doesn't, and through the means of the word, God usually uses that to turn someone's heart. And this tells us as well that God never provides, God never converts someone God never turns their hearts and opens their eyes to see Jesus as the Messiah. He never provides a conversion without providing a commission because the grace of God, as I said, is relational. And God now bestows grace on someone, not so that they can keep it to themselves. Because grace is relational, it's always now outward and outer focused. So the Apostle Paul, he receives grace. He's saved. What is he now doing? By grace, he's writing the epistle to the Romans to bestow the church at Rome a spiritual gift of knowing God. We now read the book of Romans, and with this knowledge, it is now outward focused, so we can now clearly articulate gospel truth to other people. Grace, beloved, is always other focused, and that grace is effectual meaning it has real impact in someone's life because the one who, bes who bestows grace is God himself. Question. Yes? Um, is love and grace the same? Love biblically defined is purposefully acting for someone else's long-term spiritual benefit. But grace now is a specific subset of love in that it usually bestows a lasting benefit or favor on the person. So, because grace is relational, grace always involves a relationality between two parties. God is love, meaning love is something in his essence and internal. But now when that love is expressed, or when now that love has an object or a target to bestow uh, grace on its recipient, that now is the grace, its relationality. So that without creation at all, God would still and always be love. But now with the creation, God can now bestow grace because there's relationality there. So grace now is the outward expression of love. Does that make sense? Any other questions? Okay. 
So, Paul and the apostles received grace so that they could give. Why did they receive grace? Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. When the apostle Paul talks about the obedience of faith, he's talking about obedience that is from or is the result of faith. Because, biblically speaking, obedience always involves faith and faith always involves obedience. Church, when we trust God, when we believe God, when we say the Bible is exactly what God has revealed to us and it is the true word of God and we actually believe it, what now happens? We obey it because we believe it and we have faith and we know that it is true. So true, genuine faith always equals obedience to the word of God. Obedience without faith is legalism. Obedience without faith is Phariseeism. Obedience without faith, you actually have faith in your works. Obedience without faith means you now have faith in your works. You actually don't trust God. You trust in the things that you do in order to gain standing with the Lord. This is why in his public ministry, Jesus was so adamantly opposed to the Pharisees because they didn't actually trust God. They trusted in their works. And this is how we know genuine faith is real, by obedience. Because what does James 2, verses 14 to 16 say? That faith always yields works, right? We are not saved by the works, but because faith is produced by the grace of God, it's always going to be effectual and change the person so that now it is proven in their obedience to the word of God. We are not saved by the works, but the faith that bears, but faith bears fruit in the works. And the other thing to mention is this. In our growth as believers, just as our faith in God increases, so does our obedience. So the more we trust God, the more we delight in and the more we cherish his commandments. Faith, therefore, is not static but has legs. So it actively repents, it follows Christ, it obeys, and it works in Christ's vineyard. This is what Matthew Henry writes. Quote, the act of faith is the obedience of the understanding to God revealing and the product of that is the obedience of the will to God commanding, end quote. So obedience of the faith simply tells us when we truly believe God, we obey him. And this point is crucial to understand because someone answers question for me. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ an offer is it a free offer of grace or is it a command? By a show of hands, how many people think the gospel is a free offer of grace? Raise your hand. How many people think it's a command? 
church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not optional. It's not something you can think about. It's not something that you can go home, think over, and maybe next week decide. In the book of Mark, Jesus opens his public ministry in Mark 1.15, and he says, these are his first words in the book of Mark. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is not a divine suggestion. It is a command. Thou shalt believe the gospel. And here's the point. Because God commands us, when we actually believe the gospel message, we obey it. But the only way anyone is able to respond to that gospel message in faith and obedience is by the grace of God, is by his love stooping down and enabling us to respond. This is why those who reject the gospel are held accountable, because God doesn't suggest we believe in Christ. He commands it. Therefore, anyone who rejects Jesus Christ as Savior is essentially calling God a liar, which earns that person eternal condemnation. The obedience of faith. So who obeys? Those who have faith. How do we get faith? By the grace of God. The gospel is a command. Now here's why that's important. If we don't see the gospel as a command, what happens? What basically happens is the modern American church. What basically happens is we now minimize or lower who God is in his commandments and we make us seem better and better. We take church, we take discipleship, we take prayer, we take pursuance of holiness much more lightly because the gap now between God and us is narrowed. In other words, we begin to minimize sin and we begin to creatureify God because the gospel is but a mere suggestion. We regard the church, discipleship, and personal holiness as unnecessary, and we have to realize as well, the fact that the gospel is a command in and of itself is an act of grace. Why? Because no sinner actually deserves to hear the gospel. So the gospel message in and of itself, which communicates what God has already done for us, even though it's a command, is an act of grace. The obedience of faith therefore involves the totality of a person in that not only is their mind engaged, but so is their heart and their will. So someone who has true saving faith in Christ, the obedience to the word of God, it's not coerced, it's not forced. The obedience is never something they do against their will because when the truth of God hits your mind, it changes that mind. So now your mind is transformed, Romans 12, 1 to 2. Now your heart is transformed, and now your will is transformed, so that now you want, you yearn, you desire to do the will of God. For as it was Jesus who said, if you really love me, then you will obey my commandments. The logical inverse of the term 
the obedience of faith is the disobedience of idolatry. The inverse of the term, the obedience of faith, is the rebellion of unbelief. Because the main way people act in life who actually don't believe God is rebellion, is idolatry, where they worship the creature rather than the creator. And remember, who is Paul writing this letter to? The Romans. He's writing to a Gentile audience. So he's writing in and amongst the Gentiles in the city of Rome to particular people who are now called out of secular culture at large that now constitute the church at Rome, telling us what? that Paul, as a Jewish Jew, as the most Jewish you could be back then, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he's telling the church at Rome, Jesus Christ, although he is a Jew, is not a Jewish savior. Jesus Christ is the savior for all of humankind, which is why he can preach this message to the most Gentile of cities, the people who exist back then in the city of Rome the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And the last thing I'll mention today is this. The purpose or the reason why Paul was communicating the gospel to the Gentiles, the end point now was not salvation for the Gentiles. And this is a critical point to understand. God saves us not with the terminus not with the end point being our salvation. Our salvation is a means, is a conduit, which ends in what? Which ends in us glorifying God. Heaven doesn't consist of people who are saying, gee, this is great, I'm glad God saved me. Heaven consists of people who recognize that God's love stooped to save them. And now they spend eternity doing what? Worshiping and glorifying God. So Paul writes, the point of all this, he received grace. He's now communicating the gospel message to the Gentiles so that what? They will have the obedience of the faith so that God will be glorified for his namesake. This is a little clause at the end of verse number five, that can't be graced over. Because although we are saved by grace through faith, the, the purpose or the end point of that isn't us. It is the glory of God. God did not save us for our sakes. God saved us for his glory. What does Isaiah 43, seven say? That we were created for God's glory. Amen. That does not change in the salvation process. So when the Bible says for his namesake, you may imagine a scene where a father tells a son, son, you have to protect the family name. Or when you're, when you're talking about a uh, societal relations, a man may have a good name. What does that mean? He has a good reputation or a nature or a character. So when the gospel now is preached for God's namesake, that essentially speaks to the nature or the character of God himself. So in Philippians 2, for example, when it talks about the ascension of Christ, who now has the name above all names, it's not just talking about Christos Kurios. It's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord in his nature or character.
So what a saved person knows is what God has done to stoop so that God ultimately is the one who is glorified. And realize this, church, that God has more delight in saving and pardoning a sinner who doesn't deserve it than we have in being pardoned. That's how good God is. That is why our response to salvation isn't the end. It is always to God be the glory forever. Believing God and trusting in him then, in what he did through his son, in obeying his truth, glorifies him. But if someone has access to an open Bible and doesn't trust God and doesn't obey, what they're essentially now doing is saying, God, you're a liar, which doesn't glorify God. So the, the obedience of the Gentiles for his namesake. Any questions? Okay, let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, as always, to meditate on and study your word. We entreat you to continually nourish and water the tree that you have planted in our hearts, that it may bear fruits 30, 60, and 100 fold. Lead us and guide us, O Lord, not only on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, as we earnestly and truly seek to know you by the means of your word. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.